Stories are what piece our lives together. It's an ability we all have to be storytellers, something innate within all of us. As season one of Smart comes to a close, we will open up a storybook by a crackling fire and listen to the stories of friends old and new. As I'm turning the pages of the storybook, I want you to do something for me. Close your eyes. Imagine you are sitting in a cabin. Nice, warm, comfy. There's a fireplace in the background. I'm sitting across from you in a rocking chair with a book cracked open. You have a blanket. You're with your friends or anyone that you want to be with when you listen to a story. You're snuggled up. You're wearing slippers. There's food right at your fingertips. And now we're ready to begin. It's time for the storybook. Chapter 1 begins with a story from Michael Polite, a story of owning a Rolex in your mouth. Our second story comes from Lani Tutapali in California, a story of driving down the highway and having a late night episode of sticking it to the man. And our last story in chapter 1 is by Jay Murdoch, a story of graduating, but not really. So I was a post-30 braces wearer, and on my first visit to the office, I was geeked, excited. Finally, I would get the perilous alignment of my grill fixed. After so many years of being picked on in cafeterias and on playgrounds, from coast to coast, I might add, I finally would remedy the bane of my existence, my crooked teeth. Well, all of that excitement was drained out of the reservoir of my enthusiasm simply because when you get braces on, all of your crookedness is put on highlighted display. It's like I didn't even know my teeth were this crooked until I had braces. And I guess maybe this is a life lesson for all of us that whenever we're seeking to realign crooked places, uh, they will become more exposed. Uh, the dysfunction of our crookedness will become more exposed. So maybe my orthodontist caught the look on my face when I looked in the mirror for the first time. And he rebuked me and said, why are you frowning? And I looked at him with pale honesty on my face and said, do you see this? It just pointed right at my teeth. And he said, what, do you think you look ugly? And... I don't know why I was just so honest in that moment with all of his associates listening. I said, yes, I do feel ugly. He says, listen, hold that mirror up to your face. I did. He said, what do you have in your mouth? I said, braces. And he said, no, a Rolex. That's what you have in your mouth. 
Then he pulled out the price sheet for my braces and said, now compare this to this. And he pulled out a price sheet for a Rolex watch. And he said, my friend, whenever you smile, you need to smile as large as you can. Because the last time I saw a guy with a Rolex, he made sure everyone could see it. The only difference between what you have in your mouth and what that guy had at his job is where the Rolex is placed. He had his on his wrist. You have yours in your mouth. You have a Rolex and you need to let everyone see your Rolex. Man, the change in perspective was phenomenal. As I started looking at my braces, um, less as a symbol of my dysfunction and more of a symbol of my prominence and prestige because I had some true bling bling in my mouth. Uh, $5,280 worth. Getting pulled over, I think for most people, isn't really an amusing experience. Um, I've only been pulled over once. I haven't gotten any tickets or anything. But the one time I did get pulled over turned out to be um, kind of an insulting experience. For me and probably the officer who pulled me over. So to set the scene, I when I went to Andrews, home for me was California. And in the summers, I would drive either from Andrews to California or vice versa, depending on, you know, what time of the school year it was. And so I remember this one year, I was driving back from from Andrews to Sacramento. And that drive is about 2,000 miles about 30 hours of driving and most of the time we'd do it just pretty much straight through with a little bit of rest well this one time I was driving back with Daniel and we got to Nevada which is almost the home stretch probably like 10 hours from home and we're driving through the mountains and it's nighttime and it was my turn to drive and I don't know if it's real or not but I say I have night blindness I don't know I I just can't really see great at night when I drive and I get really nervous, especially like driving in the mountains and everything. So I was driving and I was in the far lane and I guess I was going kind of slowly. Well, I was going like 60 miles an hour and there was a truck for some reason, a semi in the fast lane that was like on my tail, kind of like flashing its lights at me and like freaking me out. So I was driving even more carefully. Anyways, I ended up getting out of that lane because a cop pulled up next to me and turned his lights on. So I went to the side and I pulled over and rolled down my window and the cop was like, hey, how are you guys doing tonight? I was like, all right, we're doing all right. You know, mind you, it's probably midnight. And he says, so uh, I noticed you were going a little bit slow and that you were kind of, you know, weaving a little bit. I wanted to pull you over and see, you know, have you been drinking? And I was so caught off guard, I kind of forgot I was talking to a cop. And I just got so indignant, and I was just like, no, I haven't been drinking. Because, you know, I never drank a drop of anything in my life besides water. And he, you know, was taken aback, because I don't think anyone responded to him to that in that way before. He said, no, oh, I'm sorry, I just wanted to check. And I was like, no, I just, you know, that truck was freaking me out, and I'm in the mountains and whatever. And he's like, okay, well, you know, just, just drive in the other lane then, you know, be careful. Sorry about that, you guys have a good night. And what I took away from that experience was I was just more irritated than anything, but I got pulled over for assumably being a drunk driver just because I hate driving at night.
All right, let me tell you a story about how I got to Andrews University. Uh, it's a long, convoluted, messy path to get from uh, where I was to where I am, but it taught me everything I need to know about what it means to be a patient man living in an impatient world. So I graduated from La Sierra University. Uh, I'm going to, you know, for the sake of this being just audio only, uh, I want you to picture graduated in air quotes. So I graduated from La Sierra University and I got a job working for Southeastern California Conference. Uh, they said your first assignment is going to be uh, working at uh, the Loma Linda Chinese Church, which that in itself uh, could be a completely different story. But I worked there for 10 months. Uh, I survived my time there. And then uh, Southeastern California Conference said, we're going to send you over to Andrews University. We want you to get your uh, Master of Divinity. And so I packed up everything I owned. I got into uh, a plane and flew myself to Berrien Springs, Michigan, with a good friend of mine, Kyle Dever, who uh, we sort of just jumped in headfirst, hoping to get our MDiv experience out of the way very quickly. Uh, he and I had two very different experiences at the administration office. Uh, he handed them a letter that said, everything's taken care of, send the bill to this uh, location. I handed him an identical letter that said, send all the billing to this. He got a, right this way, sir, here's where all your classes are. And I got a, you're not allowed to go to school here. So that was really interesting in itself, which is coming back to the reason why I graduate was in air quotes. It turns out you can't enroll in a master's program without an undergraduate degree. I believed I had an undergraduate degree. Uh, my conference believed I had an undergraduate degree. Turns out no one had ever offered me a completed degree from La Sierra University, and I had been living a lie for the last uh, 12 months. And so, uh, as it turns out, uh, my career path was supposed to take me to becoming a pastor, somebody who was going to dedicate his life and career to doing service for the community. The only thing stopping me from ever uh, getting to that next level was that I had not finished one freshman level community service class. So the only thing keeping me from a life of community service was, in fact, community service. So after spending a semester doing absolutely nothing but working for campus ministries and not taking a single class, I drove back to La Sierra University. I stayed in a tent for 10 months in my best friend's backyard, uh, just going to this one class, getting in my uh, requisite coursework. I graduated. I spoke at the graduation this time just to make sure I had picture proof that I was really there and uh, uh, got back in my car, drove back to Berrien Springs, uh, where it led me to uh, what was the then shortest version of an MDiv ever because I had worked so very hard to get myself over to uh, a place where I could get this degree only to find out that another conference was offering me a job to leave immediately to move to Boulder, Colorado. So everything that I had done to get myself to this place was now on the line, which of course uh, I let God lead in that one. I said, okay, let's take it. We'll go to Boulder. So I worked to get myself to a place, back to a place, back to a place again, only to go to Boulder, which after a year and a half of time there where I believed I was going to spend the next 10 years of my life, uh, I got a letter from my new conference president who said it's been 17 and a half years since we've sent somebody to the seminary 
and we're ready to send someone back, and we've chosen you. Which means I will have gone to the seminary for my third time to get the same degree within a two-year span, uh, all thanks to, uh, one, making the mistake of believing that God will lead me, which he will, believing that my patience would pay off, which it didn't, (laughs) and taking me back to a place where... Uh, I was really trying to rush to get it done only to find out that I needed to take my sweet time and get this degree done the way it was supposed to. So I went from California to Michigan to California to Michigan to Colorado to Michigan. All to learn one very basic lesson. Be patient with God. God will take you everywhere you need to go, even the places you're trying to run from. Chapter 2 of our storybook begins with a hilarious encounter in a nightclub, an anonymous story that is read by Natalie Dela Cruz. Our second story in Chapter 2 details a very interesting and completely absurd roadside encounter from my dear friend Ashok Wilmot, which takes place in Washington State. And our second story details a life of travel and how travel has brought upon new attitudes of discovery and wonderment brought to us by Carla Delgado. So I was out dancing with my girls right and you know how it is guys see a bunch of girls dancing in a circle and they try to cut in and some we'd let in if they showed us their footwork but other scrubs we had to let go. So there was this guy that was kind of doing a lot, and you could tell he was pretty gone already. A couple times, this guy's flask fell out of his jacket, and we were like, go home, big fella. You're drunk, big fella. But no matter how gone he was, he would always end up finding our circle. So it seemed that the night, my feet hurt, and I'm leaning on a table kind of to myself. Naturally, homeboy finds me. And mind you, this whole night, this guy kept saying things to me like, but I watch out, shorty. By the end of the night, I'm going to take you home. And I'm all like, I'll keep my eyes peeled, but for different reasons. Thanks. So homeboy finds me and tries talking it up. He started off with, dang, girl, you're my little Beyonce. And I said, you're only saying that because baby boy is on. Next. Well, mama, let me tell you that you're gorgeous. And that smile, mm, let me see that smile, proceeds to grab both of my cheeks. And if there's anything you need to know about me, is that I hate when people touch my face. So I said, swerve. And I should have let it stop here. But he proceeded to talk about how he was going to take me home. He was like, girl, I'm going to take you home, and it won't even be about the sex, though. But we about to have some good sex. Nah, girl, I want to start my life with you. And he proceeds to talk about picket fences and stuff. And I'm like, when you're that ready, though? My roommate calling him out, boy, what do you even do? And I'm like, does it even matter? Homeboy turns to me to try one last time and says, girl, let me just tell you, this ain't about the booty, it's about the beauty. And that's when I knew it was real. So I let him take me home. Just kidding. We named one of our plants after him, though. The end. This is the story of the funniest thing that has happened to me in the last six months. Um, I was driving home from work and about to get some lunch. And I was driving through a few roundabouts. Well... As soon as I entered the first roundabout, I saw a guy ahead of me starting to weave in and out of the lane. So at the next roundabout, I passed him. And as I went through the the other roundabout, 
then I noticed my rearview mirror that he was coming up really fast behind me. And so as we entered the last roundabout, he comes right up to me as I start braking to slow down for the roundabout. Well, he kept accelerating and didn't realize he needed to brake until the very last moment. Well, it was too late. So he slammed on his brakes, his tires locked, and he went through the roundabout. He didn't go around the roundabout. He went through the roundabout. Yeah. Well, he went so fast, he actually hopped the curb on the roundabout, high-centered his car, got it stuck. The two front tires popped off along with the suspension components. Yeah, the springs just, like, literally sprung off. (laughs) Well, I parked the car and went over to see if he was okay, and he actually was okay. Um, But he was fumbling with a bunch of stuff in the passenger seat, so I said, hey, can you come over and let me check you out just to make sure that you're okay? So he comes over, and he starts swearing off a storm like, I wrecked my car, and he's putting a lot of profanities in there. And um, I was like, yeah, I can see that. Are you okay? <laughs> and he appeared to be okay. Well, I offered to like take him to some help, either like the hospital or somewhere. He's like, I just want to go home. And so he's like, I'm just going to grab a few more things. So he goes into his car again, uh, which is still high-centered on the roundabout. And as he was there running through, going through, <laughs> getting his stuff, um, some cars started driving by and he started screaming profanities at them and flicking them off. Um, he was obviously not in a clear state of mind. Um, and some lady started laughing at him and then he started flipping her off and saying a whole bunch of naughty things. Um, and then finally, a huge SUV full of Samoans stop and get out and the driver offers him some help. Another guy gets out and he starts walking around the car just like in absolute like awe of it and another guy gets out and like runs to the front of the car and starts like dancing with no music in front of the wrecked car and uh as all this is happening he's like screaming like don't call the cops don't call the cops well finally a cop actually did show up thankfully and so i walk over to the cop and the cop asks is this, is this your friend? I was like, no, officer, I just saw what happened. That's all. And he's like, well, you got to call a wrecker. And so the guy is like, I'm not going to call a wrecker. I don't have money for that. Why don't you put it on your tab? And the police officer's like, well, I could put it on my tab, but then I'd have to arrest you for reckless driving. And then the guy's like, Oh, oh, no, officer, no, no, it's okay, I'll call the wrecker, it'll be alright. <laughs> and every time I drive by that roundabout, I still see uh, chips in the wall where he hit the car and high-centered it. I remember the first time I went on a big trip with my family outside of the U.S. Now, we had always traveled in Mexico, but this was something different because we were going to South America We were going to Peru, and I was in sixth grade at the time, and it was summer vacation in June, and we were heading down to my uncle's wedding. It was a perfect excuse to make a trip out of it, as we would already be in the country, and so 
One of my fondest memories is traveling to Machu Picchu while we were there, um, going through the train, on the train, through the mountain valleys, and finally making it to the top of Machu Picchu and just reveling in being there at that moment. And the greenery, the llamas and the alpacas, being there with my family. And there's a joke between us because my brother lost his tooth up there and we buried it and so we think one day they'll find it and think they found an ancient Incan tooth when it's actually my brother's. But that first exposure to the outside world, to travel, um, embarked me on a journey um, to now where I have been able to travel to other places all across the world. And I have many stories, but one that I think of in particular is Morocco. Um, I've spent a year abroad in France, and so three other girls and I decided to head down for spring break. And the first city we stopped at was Marrakesh, and that was my first exposure to Moroccan culture, to Muslim culture, and being in the African continent. And so it was a lot of new experiences, but it was one that I think molded me a lot for the better. Um, we had two friends there, Aziz and Ayub, that helped us out and stayed with us. And so that was a good experience, having people to help us navigate our way through. And one day we were just walking around Jemadzina Square, which is the main square in Marrakesh, just talking, laughing, um, enjoying the commotion, the bustling of people. And we decided to head somewhere. I didn't know where, but we just followed their lead. They put us on a bus and told us, get off at this stop and we'll be there. And so in faith, we got on the bus and prayed that we would make it to the right place um, since we did not know the language or how to communicate with them necessarily. And so there were a bunch of people on this bus. We were packed up to the windows and could barely see my friend all across the way. But we finally made it to the bus stop. And then they told us, we're going to climb this mountain. And so all my friends were on board, but I was wary of it. I said, no, I'm not sure I want to do this, but I wasn't going to be left behind in this unknown city. So I decided to tag along with them. And it was quite trying. You know, you're climbing up this mountain with barely any light aside from the light of the city and the moon. And there were all these little thorns just hurting us along the way. But when we finally got to the top and were able to rest, it was a beautiful sight to behold because... The whole city was lit and then there was a call to prayer going across the city and it was a beautiful moment to reflect on and I just can't wait to see what else is in store as you discover new um, cultures, new ex have new experiences and meet new people across the world. Our third and final chapter in the storybook includes a story by Nina Velado, straight from Marion Springs, and it's a story of clumsiness and pure chance. Following that, a story by my dear friend Daniel Tutapali that takes place in California. It's a story of his beloved and beautiful dog, Rooney, and of course, a donut. And lastly, a story by Garrison Hayes, which features... True love, romance, and a toilet. I have the unfortunate combination of being born on Friday the 13th and being a complete klutz. And these two paired together have created what is known as Nina Velado. 
I think the best example of the two combinations working together against me is something that happened to me my junior year of college. I was studying in my dorm room. My roommate was there studying for a test I was having. I was just getting so drowsy. I was out of it, couldn't focus. So I was like, I'm just going to go to bed. My roommate, who never sleeps and only studies, told me, no, you need to keep studying. This test is important. School is important. So I was like, okay, you know what? I can, I can study from bed. Like, that's possible. People do that. So too lazy and tired to get out of bed to fetch my computer, I decide to lean over the edge of my bed where my desk is about one and a half feet away from me, and I'm just going to use the chair that I have uh, for my desk to prop me up as I reach for my laptop computer on my desk. Uh, Chair's tip, little known fact, and that's exactly what happened. The chair tipped backwards. I fell forwards, slammed my face into my desk (laughs) at the corner of like the desk, and... It hurt. My roommate just watched in wonder as I fell face down to the ground. No attempt to help me. But in the end, I got up, I shrugged it off, acted like that was not a big deal, like that was a common occurrence, sat straight back down in my desk and pretended to be typing while my face was hurting. And it was hurting so bad. I was like, I I just got to go to the bathroom. Like, I need to hide. I need to cry in private. Not let my roommate see. So I get up and I go to the bathroom. And as soon as I see myself in the mirror, I burst out laughing. Because my eye is completely swollen shut and purple. And my nose is bleeding. I've never had a black eye. And I think as a kid, I've always wondered how it might feel like. So when I got my first black eye, I was kind of excited, also embarrassed, but mostly excited and very proud that I FaceTimed my boyfriend, my parents, showed it off to the world. I was like, look what I did to myself. Um, Unfortunately, the timing of this black eye was most inconvenient. Uh, Our campus um, in my university was having the Victims Abuse Awareness Week. The psychology and counseling departments were putting flyers and these posters all over the campus about victim abuse awareness. And I went to class all throughout those weeks with that black eye looking very much like a victim of abuse, which is a very serious topic, which I, I... you know, condone and implore the student body to, you know, fight against the atrocities done to uh, by the atrocities of abuse. (laughs) Um, But I unfortunately was the model for this tragedy. Unfortunately, on top of that, all my reasons for how the black eye came to be were very similar phrases that victims tend to use, like, I did this to myself, this is my fault, I fell. All three statements were very true, but no one believed me. Um, My teachers would pull me out of class, out of concern, um, 
and really genuinely good people on our campus, uh, but they just had a very hard time believing me, given the context of the week, uh, giving my explanations. Um, so that's just how those two characteristics of how I came to be, these two forces are working against me. And uh, you know what? It's the life I live. Choose to live dangerously, carelessly, and uh, clumsily, if that's a word. My name is Daniel, and if you know my wife and I or follow us on Instagram, you know that we have a dog we love named Rooney. A few months after getting her, it was her birthday, and we decided to give her a treat. Like all parents should for their child's birthday. After work, we go to the grocery store and we pick up a donut. If you look at the hashtag that we have for our dog, uh, Young Rune, Y-U-N-G-R-O-O-N, you'll see a photo of our dog wearing a birthday hat that we made out of newspaper, a donut with a birthday candle, and her signature, unamused, eyes looking in two different directions look. We sing happy birthday. We blow out the candle and she just eats it up. She is so happy and she has a great birthday celebration. The next morning she wakes me up the same as she does every morning, whining to let someone to take her outside. <clears throat> so I stumble out of bed, I find her leash and I latch it on, I reach for the doorknob when Rooney steps in front of me and without breaking eye contact, she just barfs all over the floor mat. And I look and she's just yakking up bread and rainbow sprinkles and I'm frozen with disgust and guilt because the treat that we gave our dog while making her temporarily happy made her sick. I clean up and I apologize to Rooney. Later on that day, while I'm at work, a friend asks about us getting our dog a donut because he saw it on Snapchat, naturally. And I said, yeah, it was cute, but she threw up this morning. And he stopped whatever he was doing and he looked at me and he said, uh, duh? Why would you give your dog a donut? Most dog owners would treat their dogs with a steak or something, which I didn't know. Uh, well, Rooney is fine now, but lesson learned, and I won't be doing that again. So it's New Year's Day 2017. I'm spending time with this girl who I really, really like. I mean, she's like the most beautiful woman in the entire world. She invites me to spend New Year's with her and her family. I'm hype. So things are going like extremely well that day. I'm vibing with her family. All of my jokes are hitting. Her dad and I are having great conversations about sports and politics, and it's 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 all going going well. I mean, to top it all off, the food is absolutely delicious. Um, it was great. So we're at this dinner. And this is their family tradition where they have dinner in the evening, and we're all sitting around the table chilling. Um, everything I can't stress this enough. Everything is going. Perfectly, And the reason why I can't stress this enough is because what happens next was literally the most embarrassing sequence of events in my whole entire life. And a heads up, this is going to get a little bit graphic. So we're all sitting around the table talking 
And then I realize that I have to pee. I have to go urinate. So I excuse myself and I run to the first floor bathroom around the corner. Um, I go in and do my thing. No big deal. Real quick as not to draw attention unnecessarily to myself. Um, But while I'm in there, I realize I need to do a little bit more than just pee. Um, So I make a snap decision. Um, I had to drop the deuce. Okay, so I do that real quick. I do it as quick as possible. And then I go to flush uh, the toilet. And that's when I knew that I had messed up. Okay, let's just say things weren't going down the way they should have. So I'm thinking to myself, surely, surely this isn't happening. This toilet is not about to flush or or not about to overflow. So I do what any person would do. I I flush again. Um, That was a mistake. Uh, The water is starting to like really starting to swell. Right. It's flowing. Okay, I, I have never prayed that hard in my entire life. I'm like, Lord, Jesus, Allah, God, if you are real, I need you to intervene right now. Okay. I mean, this toilet cannot overflow. This cannot be the way that this story ends. It's at the brim. All right. And I am positive that when I prayed that prayer, God literally stretched out his hand and said, thus far and no further. The water stops miraculously. Okay, it just stops and it's starting to go down slowly. So I'm breathing a major sigh of relief. But then remember, I have this beautiful woman and her family out in the dining room. They're chatting and laughing in the background. I can hear them. And it hits me. I have been in this bathroom way too long. They're going to get suspicious any minute now if I don't get out of here. So I do what any logical person uh, would do in this situation. I put the toilet cover down. I wash my hands and I leave that bathroom as fast as possible. Then the guilt starts to set in. So I go, I grab my cell phone from the table and I step out of the room again. And from the kitchen, I text her, hey, I just clogged your toilet. Do you think you can grab me a plunger? Hit send. So I'm looking at her from the other room and she gets the text. She looks at it. She's loyal. She pops up, runs upstairs, okay, to get a plunger. Then she comes back downstairs, no plunger. Then she goes into her parents' room and then she comes out of her parents' room, no plunger. Then she goes back upstairs, then downstairs, no plunger. And I'm kind of confused. So she goes over to her dad, whispers something in her ear. He, in his ear, he gets up, goes upstairs, then downstairs into his and her mom's room then back upstairs then back downstairs no plunger okay at this moment i am so embarrassed then this man this man her dad goes and then asks his wife her mom and her mom pops up from the table and goes upstairs then downstairs then to her room I mean, literally everyone in the house at this point knows that I've clogged the toilet. This at this point, this is when her mom realizes that they've left the plunger um, in the garage, which is literally the most useless place in the world to have a plunger. Um, so, yeah, that that happened. Her dad, if you think this is all bad, it gets literally even it, it gets even worse. Her dad then goes outside to the garage grabs the plunger, comes in the house, and proceeds to plunge the toilet for me. 
I was mortified. Like life was literally not worth living in that moment. Okay. And he's just going in there, just plunging it and plunging it. And I'm having to watch this. Like, like what? Uh, this is literally what hell is like. It has to be. So the good news is that uh, they thought it was hilarious and kept reassuring me that it wasn't that big of a deal. And they were trying to tell me it wasn't my fault. And, and I really wasn't hearing any of that. But the moral of the story is this. Um, you, as a homeowner, as an apartment renter, you literally have a moral obligation to keep a plunger in your guest room. Anything else, anywhere else is a sin and it's cruel and mean and don't do it. And that's it for our book and our very first season of Smart. Thank you so much. You'll be hearing from me soon. Goodbye. Just kidding. I'm not going to let you go just yet. But I do want to ask you a question. Do you fancy yourself a storyteller? Like I was saying before, I believe that we are all storytellers on the inside and we just have to search for that ability within us. Jake Gyllenhaal was just in a play, starring role in a play called Sunday in the Park with George. He has a YouTube video on uh, YouTube where he sings the song Finishing the Hat. And the song comes at a time in the play where he has to realize he has to push the people away that he cares about in life to complete the art, to make art that immortalizes those that are around him. I think it's a heartbreaking song, and that's a heartbreaking point that the play makes, but maybe it's a sacrifice that we have to make, but not in the same way that the play puts forth. I challenge, we do have to sacrifice some of our time to make art that can immortalize memories and moments, but how about we sacrifice time to make stories, collect stories, become storytellers, to immortalize the lives of those that we care about and those that exist and live around us. George, the character that Jake Gyllenhaal plays, he sings about finishing a hat, the final piece that he has left in his painting. And his lover, Dot, is being pushed away because he can't spend time with her. He truly sees her, but he's seeing her through his art, but he's not really seeing her as the person that she is but he realizes that this is a sacrifice he must make because if he can create a hat on her head in the painting that features her it could cover her from the sun that she complains about in real life thus immortalizing dot his lover into a piece of art that can exist for years and years to come he'll fasten his lover to time and she will never cease to exist she will always live in his painting, and people like you and I will forever see his work and, in turn, see her continuing to live on. So why don't we do as much as we can to immortalize those that we love? Tell stories, make stories, and fasten everyone we care about to time itself. Allow people to live for years to come through stories. Finish the hat.
finishing a hat, starting on a hat, finishing a hat. Look, I made a hat. Well, there never was a hat. 